Well, if you were here with us in January, uh, you may remember we went through a series that we called Church in HD. And what we talked about is just the idea that where we get our picture of church is really imperative to how we function as a, as a community of believers. And we took four metaphors that are used from the Bible that the Bible chooses to describe the, the church of God. And uh, we talked about the church as family and what it looks like with family. With each of these metaphors, you understand there are, there are um, filters that we have to kind of think through. And maybe your family was, was one that really struggled and maybe is broken apart by sin. And, and it's, it's a hard metaphor to get your mind around because it's, 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 it's just it's difficult to see positives there. Well, God can redeem that metaphor and say, you know, the, the metaphor of family for church is how I, I intended it to be. Another one we looked at was just the idea that the, the church, we function as a body. And uh, we see this on a regular basis on Sunday mornings. And that is that we all don't play music. And we all don't bring that as part of our, our worship on a Sunday morning. Um, but last week we had the, the thrill to see kids here. Well, who do you think works with those kids as they sang for us last Sunday morning, uh, who's watching our kids right now? Who comes and sets things up? Uh, some people think through business and finance, and, and everyone just brings their different gifts. Some of you are amazing at opening your home. Some of you have incredible bedside manner, and you just, you just know right what to do with someone. Some of you have the ability to counsel and to walk with people through life. Some of you are faithful prayer warriors. We never really see your gift, but in the spiritual realm, you play a huge role. And that's the picture of the body. Aren't there parts working right now we don't ever think about until they go wrong or until they're not there? And suddenly we think, wow, I really wish I had that going on. Here's another picture is that of flock. We've been, we've been described as a flock and our chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. And, um, and it says that the, the sheep know his voice and we're following hard in the footsteps of Jesus. And Jesus put in under shepherds. And we use kind of this metaphor of, of you know, uh, sheepdogs, basically, that, that listen to the master's voice and are, are responding to the master. That's what church leadership is about. It's not that we're above or we're set above, but we're, we're under shepherds to the chief shepherd, which is Jesus Christ. And finally, we talked about this incredible picture of the bride. And the church in the Bible, if you don't know this, is called the Bride of Christ. And what a picture of intimacy. With each of these uh, pictures that we looked at, if you, if you take all of them collectively, and there are some others, but these are four that we really wanted to highlight. Which, with each of these four metaphors, there are certain things we ought to be doing. As, as the body of Christ, we ought to be doing what the head of the body wants us to be doing. And the head is Jesus Christ. So, so we as a church said, what, what should we be about? There are certain prohibitions, things we just ought not be about as the bride of Christ. We're not going to cheat on Jesus. We're not going to follow after, after a strange teachings. We're not going to go off and kind of do our own thing. We're not going to go off and, and not be true to our, our husband, as it were, Jesus Christ. So you take this as a whole, and it, again, it becomes a powerful reminder. Uh, we just wrapped up this, this, this um, series that we called uh, Hard to Believe. And it's just looking at some of the hard things that Jesus said. He said, come and follow after me. And only me, to the exclusion of all other truths, to the exclusion of all other teachers or rabbis or schools of thought or philosophies. He said, if you want to really live, if you want to find your life, then just come and give it away. 
He said, if, if you want to gain things, you need to give. If you want to live, you need to die. You should love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. He just said some very, very difficult kinds of things. And part of why I want to just call attention to where we've been is I don't want to fall into the rut of just coming to church week after week. And here we go. We launch into the book of Colossians, which I'm thrilled about. I've been really excited about this series for quite a while now, and I'm thrilled that it's here. I'm thrilled that we're back in a, in a book of the Bible, which is kind of our bread and butter here at Neighborhood. But it's important to look back and say, why did we choose that? Why did we look at the church in HD? It's because it should be transforming our lives. As we look at God's word and what it says, we ought to be changing. We ought to be growing. And I don't want to just lose that. So it's good to remember. And that's found all through the scriptures. Let me say a word of prayer. I'll let you know where I'm going and then we'll dive right into it. Lord, I just ask right now that you would empower me as I speak this morning. God, I have worked and prepared some things But Lord, I yield to your spirit, ask that you would uh, enlighten the hearts and minds of people in this room. Um, I ask, Father, that you would help me to get out of the way. I pray, Lord, that people wouldn't walk away remembering me at all, but that we would lift you up in everything that we do, not just on Sunday mornings, uh, but just particularly in this time, God, we pray um, just for a spirit of revelation, that our eyes would be open to your truth and that we would be humble and yielding Uh, in that process. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Here's where I'm going. We're going to do just kind of an overview uh, today of the book of Colossians. And I could do this really, really boring and dry. I learned how to do that in Bible college. Um, And uh, I'm not going to do that for you because I think I would lose most of you and I would probably bore myself in the process. However, what I do want to do is provide some backstory uh, to, to, to the book and, and some, some filler information. I want to talk about the relevance. What relevance does the book of Colossians have to, to you and I? And finally, we're going to look at cha- uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We're just going to look very briefly at the start of the book. And um, as Rob mentioned, you know, we in, in leadership have been reading through this book. It's only 94 verses long total. So you can read through the entire book pretty, pretty simply. In fact, I would challenge all of you, as we launch into this study, just go and read the whole thing in one setting. Maybe as a family devotion, maybe as just your own quiet time one, one day this week, just sit down and just read it. And that way you get kind of the overall context of it. And we're going we're gonna to take several weeks now and look at each chunk of this, but it's important for you to periodically, periodically be reading the whole thing. Again, mind you, this, this was, was read all at one time, so it's, it's helpful for that. So, backstory. Um, by the way, we're calling this series, this entire series, Christ, the center of it all. And really what the book of Colossians is about, I don't want to spoil partway through my sermon, but we're going to give you the main point of what Colossians is all about. And this picture of an, of an atom is just a, a perfect kind of uh, image for that, that we can kind of kind of grab onto and, and dissect a little bit. Have you ever walked into a movie theater or, or joined in late to a movie and you've missed kind of that crucial first five minutes that explained everything and it left you the rest of the movie going, wait, who's he? Or what's that about? Why did he say that? You can hear from the music that this was a really critical line and everyone goes, ah, oh, and you go, what? You just have no idea. Or maybe you've walked into a joke. You know, you've walked up and there's a group of people and all you hear is the punchline. And everyone goes, ha ha, and they all get it. And you just, it just falls flat because you missed the whole build up to it. Well, that's what happens 
If you and I come and we open a book of the Bible, and this is a, a common mistake that people make as they walk up, and they just begin to read the book of Colossians without ever really kind of getting the context. And context is everything when you're trying to, to, to discover something. That's true in our own setting. Now remove yourself a couple thousand years from when the document was written, and you see how absolutely imperative it is. So each book of the Bible, there are 66 books that comprise the canon of Scripture, or the Bible as we're holding today. And each book has a context, it has backstory that's, in, that's important for us to dive into. Now, I'm not going to fool myself and think that most of us in this room are going to walk out, you know, buy a bunch of commentaries and study all about this ancient city of Colossae that doesn't even exist anymore. But I want to give you just a couple of brief pointers, and maybe you'll refer back to these. Maybe later on in chapter 2, you'll think back and go, yeah, that makes sense a little bit more now. I used to read that and not quite get that. So that's why we're doing this. But context just has to do with this. Who is writing this? What are the circumstances of that person writing? What are the worldviews of that person writing? Where is this person? Uh, to whom was it written? Right? What, what prompted this being written in the first place? And where was this all taking place? What's the, what's the, what's the location and what does that have to do with the content? Let me just kind of point to you towards Colossians for a second. The book of Colossians, first and foremost, it's, it's a letter. And we need to remember that as we study a book of the Bible, Paul didn't sit down to write a book of the Bible. He sat down to wrote a letter, to write a letter, not wrote a letter. Um, it's not a manifesto. It's not a history book. It's not a novel. It's a letter being written to a group of people. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. You could put these in your bullets if you want, but it's written, it's written to a church, not to an individual. And that's important. If I were over in Zimbabwe right now, for instance, like Glenn, and Glenn were to write a letter to Neighborhood Bible Church, wouldn't he take on a different tone and it would be broader in scope, thinking about the collective body here at Neighborhood Bible Church than if he wrote a letter to, to Rico here? If he wrote a letter to Rico, it would be filled with all kinds of stuff. If we got up and read it, tons of it wouldn't make sense at all to us. And Rico would be sitting there nodding his head. Mm -hmm. It would mean, be really meaningful to Rico, but not really to all of us. So as we read this, recognize this is written to um, a body of believers and not to an individual. The book was written by Paul. And we're going to look at Paul a little bit later as he, as he introduces himself in the letter. But it was written right around 60 to 61 A.D., so this is, this is a, a decent chunk of time after uh, the events of the Gospels that we've been in last week, for instance, from, from uh, Easter. Here's another really important part of this puzzle. He's an inmate at a Roman prison. Paul's writing from prison right now. And so, again, uh, there are some things that we're going to uncover in the book that will make more, much more sense realizing he's wearing an orange jumpsuit, has the shackles. You know, he's not, he's not in a park philosophizing. He's not sipping, you know, coffee in Paris right now. He's an inmate. Okay, so as, as we uncover this, think about that. Let that, let that kind of wash over you and, and, and uh, have bearing on it. Um, this is something interesting is that he didn't really know well the body of believers in this city, Colossae. In fact, he didn't plant the church. He knew only, we think, a handful of believers that were there. And so that's going to kind of uh, have bearing. If, if you were to look at the book of Romans, it's the same way. 
He was writing to a group of people he didn't know intimately. Compare and contrast that to a letter like Philippians. And in Philippians, it's as if he birthed, because he did, he birthed that church. He knew well what was going on there. Ephesians is the same way. He spent a lot of time in Ephesians, and he knew those people well. So it would be like me if in five years we plant a church across town. We plant a church in Morgan Hill. And let's say that, let's say that, that John Garza and his family goes off and plants that church, and I'm writing to that church. I would write in a different tone to them than I would write to everyone here. Because here, a lot of you have been in my home, and I've been in your home, and we've been with each other through some things already. And that's how it is for Paul. He's writing to this, this third-party church kind of a thing. And finally this, it's written in response to a heresy that is threatening this baby church. A heresy just being a diversion of truth, a false teaching that is creeping in. What would prompt Paul to write to a church that he didn't plant, that he didn't have tons and tons of friends at, and all of that? Uh, we don't even think that Paul ever visited the city of, of, of Colossae. There's, there's no implication of that. In fact, there's implication that he didn't. Um, here's the answer. Here's why Paul would sit down in prison. Not because he had tons of free time and wanted to work on his penmanship. Paul wrote to this church. Paul took the time to address these heresies and to write to this church because he knows about kingdom advancement. And he understands that the kingdom of God is broader than his local community. It's broader than what he gets to put his name on and call his ministry. The, the, the mindset that Paul has is a beautiful picture of the nature of God's family. And that is that he shared common interest and common aim and common hurt of those halfway around the world from him or in different communities, even that he didn't know personally, simply for the fact that they were Christians. They were fellow disciples of Jesus Christ. Thus, they were in the family of God. Here's the implication for us. That is that Neighborhood Bible Church and you individually, you are connected, you are tied to Christians whom you've never met before and you may never meet ever again or ever, period. There are Christians in India that were attacked by intolerant Hindus during their Easter service last week. That affects you and I. We don't tend to notice that because we're in our comfortable chair and we think, wow, what a bummer. But that's the body of Christ. That's the family of God that's under attack. The hundreds of pastors who've been murdered in Colombia and their Christian children who are being forced illegally into militia types of groups, that affects us. We're affected by that. This week I received word, some of you did too, about a missions trip that our family is supporting. It's a college girl from, from Valley Church and a group of, uh, from a Christian school went down to Ecuador and one of the kids turned up missing. And so our family just began to cry out to God on behalf of this kid. I don't even know if it was a guy or a gal. The email was very short. It was from the parents of this, of this gal. And we just began to cry out for her. You know why? She's in the family of God. He or she is in the family of God. And I I can only imagine how one of my kids missing would make me feel, what it would do to my faith, the stress it would put on my family. And so we as a family began to cry out to God. And what a thrilling, happy ending to the story that two days later, the person was returned safe and sound and all was good. But that affected us. That affects us whether we know it or not. Some of you are involved in sponsoring a child. World vision and harvest and all these kinds of things because you realize, man, the, the global community, people who aren't Christians get this. The global community affects us. As Christians, we ought to understand this even more. 
Paul had God's heart, and because of that, he got involved with this other group of people. I just have a question for you. How is God prompting you to get involved? You know, as a church, we're, we're, we're trying to start from early on to say we're, we're going to very clearly focus on our neighborhood because God's put us here in this place and time. But even from day one, we want to be thinking globally. We want to be thinking halfway around the world. We want to be thinking about countries and places that have never heard the gospel and what we can do, what, how we can be involved in that. Um, just a thrilling side note to that. Three from our church are going to Zimbabwe in uh, a couple of weeks. Next Sunday, we'll be sending them off in prayer. Jonathan's one of them here in the front. Uh, we got Stephen and David. They're both in the service here as well today. We're going to be praying for them. And, and, uh, and we're going to be, we're going to be able to kind of vicariously go with them in spirit in that we'll be praying for them and supporting them in that way. And they're going to go simply to, um, to serve orphans, AIDS orphans over in Africa. It's an awesome thing. So how is God prompting you to get involved? All right, how about the city itself, the actual city of Colossae? What was the political, economic, religious climate that was going on? Again, think about this. Doesn't it, doesn't it matter how the gospel takes root if you're in a rather affluent, um, you know, multi-ethnic, uh, you know, kind of trend-setting location like we are here in the Silicon Valley versus rural Iowa? which I've never been to rural Iowa, but I would imagine it takes root a little bit differently there versus the hardened streets of Watts, L.A., versus the uh, impoverished streets of you know, the Manila city dump where people live. So the gospel, how it takes root, it's the same gospel, but how it takes root, it really is affected by, by uh, the actual location. Let me just tell you briefly about, about Colossae. I'm not going to bore you with all kinds of, uh, of trivia about it, but... It's interesting that it's, it's kind of part of this, this little tri-city region. There's, there's a city right near it called Laodicea. And some of you may remember from, from Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks specifically to the church at Laodicea. So it's referenced elsewhere in the Bible. It's kind of a sister city with Colossae. And there's another city that's there called Hierapolis. And there's these three cities that are there. And basically what's happened is this. Uh, Colossae was kind of the, the big, uh, happening city. And, uh, what happened was these other two kind of sister cities began to, to grow up. And so really Colossae was, was on the decline by this point. If you wanted to go and you wanted to get culture or you wanted to have, you know, um, kind of catch a show and go to a fancy restaurant, see some economic, political powerhouse, you went to Laodicea. That's what that city was. If you wanted to go to a resort town, you went to Hierapolis. And it was basically the place to go relax, catch some golf, hit the spa, wine tasting, whatever you do. You know, you're there relaxing. That's what people came to Hierapolis to do. And by this point that this was written, Colossae was kind of on the, on the downside. It may be something similar to this. If I were to ask you in this room just how many of you know where Penn Valley is, uh, there, may be, there may be a handful that would know. But if I were to say it's right near Grass Valley in Nevada City, a lot more of you would say, oh, okay, yeah, that gives me a, a, a point of reference. Some of you are like, Grass Valley in Nevada, what? So then, then you're off the chart. I can't talk to you, sorry. Uh, but those are three cities, and my mom happens to live in Penn Valley. She was, she was a, a player in the political scene of Penn Valley, uh, which really means nothing at all. Um, but I, I kind of tease her. I, I say, boy, Mom, but if you, if you actually go back and read some of the history when I'm up there visiting her, I've actually read this book. Penn Valley was the happening city. It, it was the thing going on. And then that kind of faded in the, in, the, in the background. And now as you're driving up 80, you usually see signs for Grass Valley. People know 
know about Nevada City, but Penn Valley is off the map. So again, I bring this up because Colossae, you know, no wonder Paul never visited there, right? It was just, we didn't go there. There was no reason really to, to, to go to this city. And this is where this baby church has kind of taken root. How about the spiritual climate? What's the spiritual climate like in Colossae? Here's, here's the word for it, smorgasbord, okay? Smorgasbord, you can write that down. Uh, that, that, I, I, this is a great word. It's a, it's, a, it's a Swedish word that literally means this, ready? Butter goose table. Now, that means absolutely nothing to me at all. But here's the, the equivalent. You have to be careful when you translate directly from a language because oftentimes you'll get it wrong. Here's what the equivalent of that means. This will make a lot more sense. It means open sandwich table. Open sandwich table, right? So imagine just a spread out here and you get to come and you get to kind of pick and choose and make your sandwich, right? And you get to make it the way that you like it. Well, spiritually speaking... Colossae was basically this smorgasbord of, of, of spirituality. Here are some of the things. Uh, there was this, it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, philosophies and spiritual ideas and theories were there. And Christianity was really kind of the late arrival to this city. Um, here's just some of what was on the table. Philosophies and mythologies from the Greeks and Romans. Very prevalent in the city. Pagan worship rose up around. Um, Hierapolis was actually this, there was the hot springs there. And all kinds of pagan worship, and I wouldn't go into detail, but all kinds of stuff that's not good was going on in the worship of false gods and in pagan gods. And that was right nearby, and that was starting to seep over. There was also a large segment of Jews that, that, had, that had gone and settled in Colossae. So you had this kind of, you know, petri dish of, of all this stuff kind of, kind of mixed together, and this was who Paul was writing to. And you can kind of see how some false teaching came out of this. Um, as this baby church was there, notice that basically as, as Paul writes, he's not writing fearful that they're going to jump religions, that they're just going to you know, jump off of Christianity, chuck Christ, chuck the cross, chuck the resurrection, and just dive headlong into some other religion. As Paul writes, notice what he's doing is he's preventing them from allowing kind of seepage so that, so that Jesus no longer is the all-sufficient one, but that he's one of a couple of choices that are there. It's not that they're going to jump ship from Christianity. It's that they're going to start to water things down, change things, alter things, excuse things, and, and that sort of thing. There's a guy by the name of Epaphras that Paul led to the Lord, and they think that he went and started this church. And what's, what's happened here is this. This guy named Epaphras, who knows Paul, sees this going on in his church, and he goes and makes a visit to Paul in prison, basically, basically says, help. Our church is going wayward. We're a young baby church, and our, 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 our theology is starting to get off track. And so, and so he, he goes off to, to, to Paul. Just a little aside to this, and I, I love this, but applying this to your own life is this. That maybe you are right now the head of a household. You might be a single mom. You might be a, a dad in a household. And you are called to be on guard for that household. And what happens sometimes is we get sucked into looking at finances, looking at our time, looking at our physical state. And what happens is we forget to see with spiritual eyes the climate of our own household, the climate of our own ministry, of our own church, of our own Sunday school class, of our own community group. And Epaphras had the wisdom, he had the spiritual discernment to say, man, this is bigger than me. I've got to get some help. 
There are some spiritual things going on in here I don't even understand. I can't figure this out. I'm just a young church planner. I don't know what's going on. I've got to get Paul. Paul will know what to do. And so he goes off and he gets help. And I just think, what a, what a beautiful picture of a younger guy in ministry having the humility to go and ask for help, but beyond that, having the spiritual eyes and the wisdom and the discernment to say, this is serious. Other people tell me it's not serious, it's just a, a tiny skewing away, but this is serious. I see that this needs to be addressed. That's the climate that is going on with all of this. So how about this? Moving on to relevance and, and just asking this question, you know, what, what is in it for me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to read this book, Colossians, we're going to study it, and, and that's a, it's a logical question. Here's, here's the short answer, is that we're in the very, very similar kind of place 20, 20 centuries later. We're just in a really similar kind of climate where in this area, particularly because we have so many different cultures that live right near us. I know the spiritual condition of all of my immediate neighbors because we've lived there for a while and we dialogue with them and we've befriended them. And there is a lot going on in my own neighborhood. There's a large segment of Ethiopians that attend my kids' school. And we love this area. In fact, we have asked the Lord to say, God, we would love to raise our kids in a, in a, in a culture like this where there's a, where there's a, where there's a mix of cultures and a mix of skin colors. And, and we've been blessed to be able to do that. This is my home. This is where I grew up. But on the flip side of that, the other idea is this, is that it's not like 95% of the people in my city pretty much hold to you know, Judeo uh, you know, ethics and morals. And there's not a large chunk of people in my neighborhood that pretty much think the Bible is God's word. There's not a large chunk of people in my kid's school or teaching at my kid's school or on my kid's swim team necessarily that, uh, that hold to the fact that Jesus Christ is God's son. So what that does for me as a dad in that setting is it just... Here's, here's Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I do that first and foremost in my own life. Is this an idea that, that holds up to the measure of Scripture? Or is this, a, is this a strange idea? Is this a false idea? Is this a, a deviation in some way, shape, or form? And then I want to think that through for my family and for my kids as well. And then we want to be on guard as a church. It doesn't mean a fear mentality or a real defensive posture and all of that. We have the power of God with us. But it means to keep our head in the game. It means to keep ourselves engaged. People today are picking and choosing from a variety of thoughts, ideas, worldviews, perspectives, interpretations, translations, all that kind of stuff. And they're just kind of doing this smorgasbord thing. I don't know if you know this, but it's actually quite dangerous to eat at these following places. Uh, there's, there's probably other reasons besides what I'm going to bring up. But each one of these restaurants or fine dining establishments, uh, all of which I have had the pleasure of eating at, they absolutely shove in your face, it's your choice. It's your way. Man, Subway, you just, it's the smorgasbord. It's an open sandwich table, right? I get to tell them exactly what I want on that sandwich. And I, if I want double pickles, I can tell them double pickles, right? 
Coldstone, you just pick from all these variety of choices. This, these restaurants are brilliant. They totally appeal to our kind of you know, American right of having a ton of choice and getting to make the call ourselves. We don't want to pick one that's been pre-programmed. We want to do it ourselves. And you know, Fresh Choice puts it right on there, just how you like it. It just appeals to us. That appeals to me. I like that. When that begins to seep into my theology, I'm in trouble. I'll tell you why. Really, really, really simply. I, I was born not with a nature that is desirous of doing the right thing. I do not wake up in the morning today and say, man, it's so weird. I just always want to do the right thing for other people. I always want to lay my life down to serve others. It's called putting your flesh to death. And that means praying before you get out of bed and say, Lord, help me today to serve you and not to serve myself. And you all feel this too. It's that pull to kind of build the kingdom of self. And this is the, this is the climate. This is the uh, you know, way that's happening. I have on your notes there religious pluralism. Here's just a real simple definition of that. Any religion that is right, or any religion is right as long as it is right for you. And that's just kind of a common, prevalent thing. A lot of people I love dearly, family members, close friends, that, it, that, that, that just hold to this. They say, Dave, that's great that you're a pastor. It's neat that you go down to Mexico. Love that you're involved with that over there. A lot of good things. You're a good guy. And they basically say this. You know what? Your religion is right because it's right for you. I see that. That works. But it's not right for me. And... This is, a, this is a really common thing. I won't stir up a whole lot of problems if I come and just, and just say, hey, everyone's right about God as long as it's right for you. But again, you take that, lift it out of the religious sector and put it in other places in your life, and this makes no sense. We don't live our lives this way. I'm not going to even dive into it because we're going to get into it more as we look at the book. But that's what's going on. There's also kind of cynical alternative kinds of views. And I've had some various friends, Bible college is famous for this. You eat your lunch and, and people want to dialogue and dissect about all the nuances. Did Paul really write Colossians? Can we know that? Let's, you know, let's pour nine months into the six other options that might be out there. And, and, and that's good. I think there's people that are wired that way. The, those are the guys who write you know, chapter after chapter on the, the dating. And we think it was early 60, but someone else says it's, it's late 61. And so we're going to spend most of our life dialoguing about that. To me, God just hasn't wired me that way to, to, to really dive that deep into it. But here's where it gets tricky is when people come along with kind of this Genesis 3 approach of saying this. Did God really say? Did God really say this is true? Is, is, is God really that narrow? Did God really hold to the fact that this is his inerrant word or not? And what happens is, especially to a young church, they're new converts. They go, gosh, I don't know. That sounds pretty good. Maybe that is true. And so here again, Paul's coming in to, to be with these people via letter. The exclusive deity, work, and saving power of Jesus Christ is absolutely under attack today. Both from those who would say, I hate Christians, and from those who say, I am a Christian. I read an interesting article the other day that just had six different kind of main categories of people who call themselves Christian today. Whenever international students come over to America and I introduce them around and we go hang out and, and they begin to ask about you know, Christianity and 
and America, one of the first things I tell them is just I explain to them, I say, while we have the title of, an, of a Christian nation, uh, much of what we have is, is Americanized version of it. It's not at all. It's, it's, it's so far removed from this guy who walked the Near East 2,000 years ago and brought about in the, the new covenant, what God wants. And so when you see, you know, when you see Baywatch, you know, over uh, syndicated TV, you know, over there, that is not what America's all about. Those aren't our highest ideals there. You know, David Hasselhoff's not the new Messiah. Sorry, that's just not, that's not the deal at all. And I have to explain to them, you know, we're a Christian nation, but, but let me tell you what God says about it and not what we've kind of muddled it up with. If you and I want to articulate our faith in a culture that is predisposed to religious pluralism, which just says, hey, it's right for you, uh, that's great, but it's not right for me, this book is going to really help. If you're a Christian this morning, that means simply getting to know Christ and getting to be on track with Christ, and you'll be able to articulate your faith. Paul has an interesting strategy in, re- in, in refuting this false teaching. Uh, again, in the, in the coming weeks as we look at this, you'll notice this. Paul never outlines the heresy. He doesn't spend much time at all, in fact, dialoguing about their points and dissecting their points and then counteracting those. What Paul does is he goes straight for the truth. He begins to paint a picture of who Jesus Christ is, the majesty of Jesus Christ, the all-encompassing glory of Jesus Christ, and then how it f- plugs into our life. And from all of this you can kind of get a picture of what the heresy was about over here. Paul is talking about this. I bet this was under attack. But he doesn't spend all his time over here. Here's what I want you to get from this. Uh, I was a bank teller for about six years uh, in college. It's basically what put me through college. And as a bank teller, all day, every day, what you do is you handle dollar bills, okay? All kinds of different dollar bills, right? And um, I got to a place pretty quickly um, where where uh, you, could, you could spot a counterfeit bill super, super easy. And I didn't have to look at it. I could just be counting money and go, there it is, right there, counterfeit. I'd look at it, and then you look at it, and in two seconds you're like, yep, counterfeit. Now, as a bank teller, all I did all day long was handle money. And the point being this, if I handled all truth, 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 real bill, real bill, real bill, real bill, you hand me a fake one, There's a smell to it. There's a feel to it. You can look at the borders and see the intricacies of how the currency is made fake. You can spot it in a second. There are certain missing things that would be on there. Now, it's gotten more and more high tech as time has gone along. But I have spotted false bills in six years of being a bank teller. And frankly, it wasn't that difficult. Paul does exactly the same thing. He focuses on truth. He says, here's the truth. Here's the gospel. Here's Jesus Christ. Here's what he accomplished. Here's the deal. And then such that someone comes along and says, well, Jesus was an angel and we should worship him. And we immediately go, no, he wasn't. Well, how do you know? Because I've been taught the truth. I've handled the truth. And I learned it from Paul, who was face to face with Jesus. Um, The word counterfeit means not genuine. And then catch this part, imitating something superior. And these false teachings that were coming in, these false saviors that were coming in, these false pictures of God that were coming in are imitations of the real deal of Jesus Christ. 
And so again, my challenge to us as a church is that we would be having such a healthy, steady diet of God's Word and worship of Jesus Christ that when someone comes along with a false idea, with something that doesn't line up, if I say something from up here and you go, that does not ring true, Dave. The Berean Christians were, were praised because they went back and checked the Word of God and said, I don't think that's true. That doesn't sound right to me. And we know because we've had such a healthy diet of truth. We've, we've handled the truth so much that we can spot, spot a lie. Main point of Colossians, just in three real simple words, is this. The supremacy of Christ. As we get going into this book, and as we talk about it, just keep this in mind. Is that Christ is being elevated. He uses the word preeminent, which sounds very formal and fancy. But it just means above everything else, first and foremost. We just use this picture of center because you think about an atom and just how everything revolves, passes through, is under the direction of what's that in that center. And that's really what the book of Colossians in a nutshell is about. This is how you always spot heresy, by the way. Jesus Christ is the central issue. Who do you say that I am is what Jesus even said to someone once. But who you decide about Jesus, is he the only way? Is it Jesus plus something else? Is it Jesus or something else? Was Jesus, in fact, God's son? Did Jesus, in fact, rise from the dead? What did Jesus' death accomplish? It all comes back to Jesus. So even as you are thinking about, gosh, this sounds kind of intriguing and interesting. This guy's sure selling a lot of books. A lot of people are dialing into this. This sure sounds right. I would say, man, get to the core of what that person thinks and believes about Jesus. And I would say, don't spend 80% of your time reading all these different kinds of people who are fallen just like myself. Spend 80% of your time, if not more, diving into God's Word. And then allowing other ideas to come and, and that sort of a thing. It's just a good principle that I employ in my own life. Colossians appeals to your mind. Some of you love this. Some of you are, are emotion, right-brained heart people, and you love feeling messages. You love the emotion. You love hearing that God loves us. I do too. Some of you, God's just wired with minds that are incredibly sharp, and you love to think through something logically. You love to watch it follow its logical conclusion. And this book is really a book that, that, that challenges you to think through who is Jesus Christ? What did he accomplish? And that is what is being, uh, is being kind of presented to you. Just a real simple outline. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul is going to tell you all about the all-encompassing majesty and importance of Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 and 2, he is telling you about Jesus. Just watch for that. It's only four chapters long. Second two chapters, basically, are how it affects your life. So it's Jesus Christ, who he is. You might say it's the theology. He spends two chapters giving you theology, right thinking about who God is. And then the second two chapters, he moves over into right living. Just practical. So how does that affect? It's, kind of, it's like the so what question. Okay, so Jesus is all encompassing. He's supposed to be at the center of my marriage. What does that look like? Is that just something cute that we put on a card or sew onto a little thing we hang on our wall? Have Christ be the center of your family. What does that look like? How does how that affect my day-to-day -day life? How does it affect my tomorrow going to work on Monday morning? How does it affect my commute, my weekend, my summer plans, 
my relationships, my career, my bank account. How does this really look? Don't just give me a kind of a cute saying that Jesus is at the center. And Paul offers that. He offers practical wisdom for that. 1 Corinthians 4.20 is a great passage. We looked at it this week in our, our uh, community group. We were meeting, and, uh, and Dennis spoke a couple weeks ago about a kingdom and what the, what the subjects are to be about. And listen to this verse. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Watch for this. Chapters 1 and 2 are going to give us right thinking. Chapters 3 and 4 are going, to let us, are going to lead us, show us in how that plays out in right living. And it's going to be by power. It's not just talking about God, chapters 1 and 2. It's living for God, chapters 3 and 4. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Right thinking leads to right living. All right, Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You can follow along with me if you'd like. Uh, just a real easy way after First and Second Corinthians is uh, go eat popcorn. That's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and uh, Colossians. A little, little helpful tip for you. Uh, Colossians 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Paul, an apostle... He's of, of Christ Jesus and by the will of God. Basically, Paul starts his letters this way, and it's kind of the way of saying this is who it's from. Uh, Paul's writing right at the very beginning, this is who it's from. And, and part of why he does this, he introduces himself in different ways. Sometimes he says he's a slave of Christ. He's saying he's an apostle here. An apostle is one who, who had face time with Jesus. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 9, how Paul had face time with Jesus and a miraculous thing at his conversion. And so he's kind of lending his credentials. He's lending his, his authority of why he can write this way to this church. They don't really know him. Again, he wasn't there. He didn't plant the church. They haven't seen his life. It's a little bit akin to this. I had three brothers growing up. I still have three brothers. Uh, we're still growing up. Uh, but I'll tell you what. If, if one of my brothers, especially one of my younger brothers, came into me and said, Dave, go empty the dishwasher. My absolute second response, my first response would be to want to clobber him one because he'd probably say it with a smug look on his face. But I'd withhold that because that would be punishment later on. But my second response would be this. Who are you to tell me that? Now, I might say it in a different way, but, but that's the general idea. My immediate thing would be, who are you to tell me that? And then his immediate thing with that smug little look on his face would be, Dad said. <laughs> and that's his ticket, right? It's like, and then I go, oh, okay. And then I go and do it. And he loves it because he got to tell his older brother to do something and he obeyed, you know. But it was by the authority of Dad. And if, if he didn't say dad said, there's no way I was going to go empty that dishwasher, right? He's my younger brother. I'm not going to take orders from him. But if dad said, it's as if dad is standing in front of me, and so I go and do it. That's basically what Paul's doing here. He's saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, this is who I am. And he even says, by the will. It's not even by my own will. I didn't choose to do this, uh, but this is by the will of God. Uh, I love that he mentions Timothy. Paul, Paul was a type A driven visionary leadership if there, if there ever was one. And yet Paul uh, employed team leadership. I love that he mentions Timothy here. He mentions, hey, we're in this together, me and Timothy. And Neighborhood Bible Church has been very intentional about saying, we're not going to build this church on one person's personality. We're not going to build this church on one person's vision as if he's the only one who talks to God. 
We're going to employ team leadership. And part of why we've done that is we feel it's a biblical model. Here's Paul mentioning Timothy at the start of a letter. Who's it to? It's to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to a group of believers. He's even calling them to kind of a, a, a high standard, a reminder of who they are. I don't know how you view people, but Paul seems to be using this kind of a, a picture here. Instead of berating my kids and always telling them what they're not, instead of always pointing out their fault and saying how they'll never measure up, I'll tell you what I try to do. I try to employ a picture of, say, you're a Carlson and here's what that means. Man, God has gifted you with phenomenal gifts. I love it when you do this. When you do that, it builds the whole family up. We just love it. That's who you are. And it's kind of like just painting this picture. I do this with students all the time. God's given me the ability to look into a student's life and just go, man, you're going to be this one day. I just had the culminate, just kind of this neat uh, ending story, but not the end, just continuing story. A college kid who wanted to meet with me, we spent a couple hours together on Saturday morning, and he said, man, Dave, remember when you first told me I was a leader? It was my junior year of high school. I'll never forget it. And I, I didn't see any of that anywhere. But I want you to know, when you pointed that out to me, It really began to give me a vision and a picture of what God might use me for. And this guy now is a leader, a spiritual leader in the place that he lives with his roommates, on the campus that he is. It's not a Christian campus. He's a leader. And he goes, I just want you to know those words had power. Paul is viewing them as holy and beloved or faithful. He calls them later on holy and beloved. But it's just, a, it's just a neat picture of him saying, here's who you are in Christ. Grace and peace to you. Again, you can find this all through his letters. In essence, he's offering Jesus. Where's grace found? It's in Jesus. Where's peace found? It's in Jesus. He's kind of saying, hey, it's kind of a common greeting, but it's kind of like offering Jesus to you. Grace and peace to you. All right, that's the introduction. Uh, that's kind of the overview. Uh, let, me just, let me just end with a, a couple of, of action points. Um, you can just jot these down if you want. But, but one is this, the whole idea of, of getting involved. Some of you need to be involved in someone's life. You know what was messy for Paul to take time and write letters to, to churches? Because he might have people write back and disagree with him or write back and go, man, what you said really impacted me. Can we have a follow-up meeting? Yeah, when I'm out of prison, let's hook up for coffee, you know? But it costs something for Paul to get involved in the lives of people. It would have been really easy for him to say, look, I'm a little busy. I'm in prison. I've already planted tons of churches that are on my heart and mind. I just don't have time. Take it somewhere else, Epaphras. But instead he says, man, I want to get involved. This is a kingdom of God. This is a baby church. This is a a church that's been blood-bought with the, the blood of Christ. Absolutely I'll get involved. Who does God want you to get involved with? Who does God want you to get your hands messy with and walk through life with, even though it's hard and even though they're kind of annoying sometimes? Even though they're difficult, even though it's going to tax your schedule, even though it's going to take one more night away or some time away from, some, from family time or downtime that you might have. Who's God calling you to get involved? It might be a family member. It might be a coworker that you haven't reached out to. It might be someone in your neighborhood who's new to the neighborhood, needs a friend, needs to be reached out to. Maybe you just jot down, God wants me to be involved in blank's life for this, for this specific reason. And just write down the why. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them this week. I'm going to email them this week. I'm going to write them an actual letter by snail mail this week. There's a novel idea. And I'm just going to say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Can we get together? How was that issue that, that went on years ago? 
Here's the second thing is just be on guard. That verse in Acts 20 says, be on guard first for yourself. So just in terms of with spiritual discernment, with spiritual eyes, are you, are you looking at how your life's going? Are you looking at how your spouse's life is going? Are you looking at out for your friends? Praise God for those of you who have godly Christian friends who come around you and say, man, you are blowing it. And I'm not telling you that because I want to be in your face and be a jerk. I'm telling you that because I love you and you're going the wrong way. Be on guard. Maybe there's someone in your life that you need to go and, and, and walk through. Guard from spiritual danger. Finally, just the whole idea of Christ the center. I would challenge you this week to write down a list of everything you absolutely know about Jesus Christ. And just be thorough. Be as all-encompassing as you can be. Write down everything you absolutely know about Christ. And then save it. And I would like you, at the end of this study in Colossians, to go back and revisit your list right now. Wouldn't it be thrilling if you could just flip that page over and be able to write just tons more? And you know it from experience. Not that Jesus offers grace and peace, but that Jesus offers grace and peace. And if you'd like to get together for coffee, I'll explain to you a million times over how that's true in my life. I've tasted of it. And I can offer it to other people now. That's a different way of knowing something about Jesus, isn't it? So maybe just making a list about what you know about Jesus. You could also make a list that says, I don't know this about Christ. I've heard Christ is a miracle worker, but I haven't seen it. I've heard from Christians that Christ offers you joy. Haven't tasted of it. Doesn't mean I'm antagonistic or cynical. Just don't know that about him yet. Maybe a list of what you know about Christ, of what you don't know about Christ. And just see how this study in Colossians begins to, to maybe move one of those from the don't know category over to the no category. So, those are action points. You may have some of your own. Let me close in a word of prayer. The band can come on up. And uh, we're going to close with, with a song or two. And uh, this, this prayer that I'm going to read, I just ask you to close your eyes. It's from Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, it's really Paul praying for a dearly loved church. But it's such a powerful pa- portion of Scripture. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the glorious riches of the inheritance of the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the mighty working of His strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. And Christ, that is who we're praying to right now. That is who we sing about. That is who we are excited to grow in our knowledge. Lord, would You allow our knowledge not to be head knowledge, but life knowledge, wisdom, God, that can be a blessing and a benefit and a draw to every single person we come in contact with. In the powerful name of Christ, Amen.